0: Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology, lessons. Uh, We're looking at the doctrine of the church, and in particular, the diligent use of the outward means of grace. And just as a quick reminder, what are the means of grace? What do we mean by means of grace? Well, the means of grace are God's appointed means, or you may say instruments, by which the Holy Spirit enables the elect to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. We speak of these means as ordinary because while God can certainly reveal Christ to his people immediately, like he did with Saul, as we saw, that is not how he ordinarily works. Ordinarily, God works through the means that he has appointed in his word. And the foremost means by which he has pointed in his word is his word, the sacraments and prayer. Furthermore, we discussed in our last lesson what it means for these means to be outward. We talked about how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit covenanted to redeem some people rather than leave all people in their sins. And the revealing of that covenant in time and space gives it a twofold nature an inward, invisible nature, and an outward, visible nature. And you can see that duality throughout in the calling of God, the covenant, covenant membership, the church, and sacraments, so on. Now, since we went all over all those in detail in the last uh, lesson, I won't do that again here, but I wanted to remind you today of why this distinction is so critically important that you grasp and understand. Why is it important to recognize this distinction between the outward nature of the covenant, of the church, of sacraments, versus the inward nature or work? That distinction is important because it touches on the question of how these means become effectual, how they work. This distinction helps us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of faith. This distinction is also one of of many reasons why we're not Roman Catholics. So let me me touch on that. The Roman Catholic Church insists that these means of grace bestow saving grace ex opere operato. The Council of Trent declared, if anyone say that grace is not conferred by the sacraments ex opere operato, but that faith in God's promises is alone sufficient for obtaining grace, let him be anathema. So if you ever thought we could get along with Catholics, there you go. So what are they saying? This phrase, ex opere operato, essentially means by virtue of the action. As the Catholic Culture website explains, "Quote: literally the expression means from the work performed, stating that grace is always conferred by a sacrament, and virtue of the right performed, and not as a mere sign that grace has already been given, or that the sacrament stimulates the faith of the recipient and thus occasions the obtaining of grace, or that what determines the grace is the virtue of either the minister or the recipient of a sacrament. Provided no obstacles placed in the way, every sacrament properly administered confers the grace intended by the sacrament. In a true sense, the sacraments are instrumental causes of grace." End quote. So, for example, just think about what they're saying, implications of that. In baptism, this would imply that the water itself has some sort of power, effectual power. And in turn, it would imply that faith is not an instrumental cause. Same with the Lord's Supper. If there is some sort of inherent power within the bread and wine to bestow grace, then faith is not necessary. And so the sacraments become some sort of like a, like a magic wand. As long as you're willing to come up here and let me zap you on the head with my wand, you'll get grace. And yet, as we explain every Sunday during communion, we know that that's not how these instruments work. Regarding the Lord's Supper, for example, Paul explicitly taught that those who receive the supper in an unworthy manner bring upon themselves judgment, not grace. And that's why we emphasize faith as an instrumental cause thus over and against roman catholicism the westminster divines wrote in chapter 27 of the confession the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them nor doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or or intention of him that doth administer it but upon the work of the spirit and the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. And then our Catechism states, question 91 of the Shorter, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not from any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Spirit in them that by faith receive them. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Outwardly, a group of 20 people can participate in church, prayer, the sacraments, baptism the lord's supper and so on and only half of those 20 people may actually benefit from those means inwardly why because these means do not possess some sort of inherent power that in turn assures that they will produce the the desired effect every time no matter what rather they become powerful only by the blessing of christ and the work of the holy spirit in the heart of the elect through faith That's what makes the difference between people. You know, I was reminded of this in a very big way recently, two different ways. The first came as I was in my, I had a ton of driving the past two weeks, more than normal. But I got to go on a crazy listening binge, my audio Bible, which I love to do. And as I'm thinking about this in my mind, there's just some stuff that just really, Stuck out to me, especially listening to the book of Romans and Hebrews. So think for a minute with me of the Jews under the old covenant. These people were privileged in ways that no other nation was. In chapter nine of Romans, Paul goes through a list of these privileges. He says they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. So Paul's listing all these privileges they had. And yet Paul's listing this right after describing the great sorrow that he had because many of his fellow Israelites rejected Christ in the gospel. And why was that happening? Was it because the word of God failed? Verse 6, No. Paul explains it, rather, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all who are children of Abraham because they are are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then verse 8, this means that, he's telling you what he means. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see, it's one thing to be an Israelite according to the flesh, that is outwardly. It's another thing to be an Israelite according to the spirit, that is, inwardly. In chapter 2, Paul wrote, For circumcision is indeed a value. It's a sacrament of the old covenant, the old administration. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This is where the divines are getting their language. They're not just making it up. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, you can have the word, the written code. You can have the sacraments. You can be baptized with water. You can sit in this church every single Sunday and hear the word. You can participate in the Lord's Supper. And yet you, you could end up like so many Jews did who had all these things, who possessed the written code, the scriptures, and participated in religious rituals outwardly. And yet, you can still be as spiritually dead as a doornail, inwardly. Outwardly, it looks like you have it all together, but inwardly, you're dead, you're lifeless. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, what Paul says in Romans 10, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, he's the telos, the goal. And so Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Let that sink in. You mean to tell me a person can have a zeal for God? Be religiously active? Be outwardly participating in ordinances that God has given? And yet in the end, not know God, not be saved. Yes. And this wasn't anything new in Paul's day. What was going on in Paul's day is similar to what was going on in Moses' day. In Hebrews 3, verse 7, we read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. See, just as the good news came to Moses, the gospel came to Moses and his generation, just as the gospel came to Paul and his generation, so the gospel comes to you today, to your generation. But has the gospel benefited you? You know what's so scary about these passages from Romans and Hebrews, these warnings, especially here in Hebrews, they weren't sent to some hardcore militant group of atheists that have never been in a church. They were written to people in the church. People who made professions of faith. Again, notice what he take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, is he talking about people losing their salvation? Some people have taken it away. No. How do we know that? Because of verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, one who possesses true saving faith will persevere in her faith to the end. That's how you come to know that you've shared in Christ. But see, that's the question. Do you possess true saving faith? Many people appear at first to possess it. But in reality, do not. Despite being in possession of all these privileges from God. Jesus, speaking to some Bible scholars of his day, Said in John 5, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Notice this you do not have his word abiding in you. Then verse 39 you search the scriptures. Because you think in them that you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Did you catch that? Again, these aren't hardcore militant atheists. You search the scriptures. That's why I said they're Bible scholars of this day. And many people misinterpret verse 39, suggesting that Jesus is disparaging the Bible doctrine that's not what he's doing at all the problem is not with the Bible the problem was was that these scholars even while searching the scriptures failed to grasp the point of the scriptures the message they ultimately rejected the scriptures because they were not willing to go to Christ for life in faith and repentance which was the core message of the scriptures again it's something you see over and over again in the Bible and it's a problem still to this day. Which leads me to another reason why I was pressed about this past couple of weeks. Recently, there's a Christian hip-hop artist. Um uh, Brady, he goes by the name Fanatic. He created a group called Cross Movement. Some of you probably never even heard of it, but if you're if you're involved in Christian hip-hop, when it was starting to come up, this, was, this group was phenomenal. I was a big fan when they first started coming out. Some of them claiming to be even Calvinist. There was like six or seven of them. Anyways, Fanatic recently recorded a video on Facebook stating that not only was he leaving his church, he said, I want out of the church universal. I'm done with the Christian faith. This guy, is probably around my age, has been professing the faith for the last 30 years. He even went to Bible college and... Got a master's degree at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He's traveled all over the country sharing the gospel. And no doubt has been used to even lead many people to Christ. And now here he is saying, I don't believe any of it anymore. And many people got angry. But for me, I wasn't so much angry as I was fearful. Fearful that there are many others out there We're in a similar boat. People who are faithfully attending church, attending Bible studies, praying, fellowshipping with the saints, going through all the motions, always learning, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3.7. I just have one question for you today. Is that you? In all of your activities with this church, with baptism, prayer, fellowshipping with the saints, meals, and so on. Are you accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for your justification, sanctification, and eternal life? Do you believe to be true whatsoever is revealed in that word? Are you yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the life to come? Or are you being led by sin and more sin and ultimately unbelief? You can go through all the motions yet never truly embrace Christ through faith. So again, as as he said in Hebrews, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe, confess your sins, turn to Christ in faith, accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone. That's the point of these ordinances. Don't miss it. Perfect time. So we'll end there.